0: Well, this morning we talked with Acting Governor Josh Green. Governor David Ige left town to attend the Western Governors Conference, leaving Green in charge. Green met with military officials over our water crisis yesterday and is to tour the Red Hill facility this afternoon. The last time he visited there was in 2014 when some 27,000 gallons leaked from one of the massive tanks. Here's Green.
1: The reality is those tanks are 80 years old. There is some leakage that occurs, although it's difficult to ascertain how much. And the recent spill was likely from some human air based on movement of the fuel through much smaller pipes. But notwithstanding any excuse, we have to make sure there's total clean water for people. And I believe the fuel is going to have to be moved above ground. I feel strongly about that and express that to the military. We need to help them and support them in that once the you know, once the families are back home and in safe, kind of safe settings with good, clean water. But it's going to be a big lift, and it's going to include the EPA, the Board of Water Supply, the Navy, the DOH, independent observers, and I think very likely an emergency declaration uh, for the federal government to help protect our water supply.
0: Well, our congressional delegation has been pressing Governor Gay to asked for a declaration, and asked for EPA involvement. Do you believe that it's warranted?
1: I do. The governor's traveling just briefly this week, and he'll be back tomorrow. And I will have a memo on his desk expressing that, that after what I've seen to support the recovery, to support the Navy's effort to get water back in a clean and expedited fashion to our families, and frankly, to mitigate any possibility that this will happen again, they're going to need extra resources. And those extra resources will only come if you have an emergency declaration. So I would agree with that. I don't think we should panic anyone because I do think that they're working now better with the, the you know, the Board of Water Supply and DOH. Each day they're kind of ironing out some of their differences, but it just looks to me like it's too big a lift to put all on one entity. And the Navy does want to clean these things up you know, they don't want to hear reports of children having seizures or people getting, you know, health problems in their stomach, you know, their GI tract from fuel. Of course. That that breaks everyone's heart. This has to be dealt with. But you can't do it alone. And this is an enormous project. I don't know if people are fully aware of it, but I think it's probably worth sharing. The tanks themselves, of which there are a huge number of them, okay, they are as big as football fields. And these twenty tanks are each larger than a full football field they're enormous and they hold basically well over 100 million gallons of fuel it's not like filling up your car and then going with a gas tank to another small tank i mean these are the kind of the biggest tanks in the world and so it's going to take a lot of federal resource to repurpose this program to get stuff above ground we gave some ideas already to the governor and their team with the military, to use partnerships like Par Hawaii, who has a lot of capacity to store fuel. But it's not going to be quick. And the immediate fixes for clean water to our families and to protect the aquifer, the long-term fix has got to include support from the feds and getting above ground.
0: Yeah, and there seems to be some confusion about that uh, IAEA well that the military has shut down. And hopefully they'll clear that up so we get a better handle on exactly what Board of Water supplies response should be. Because like you said, you don't want to panic people, uh, and they are calling for conservation measures. But we do worry that what we're seeing unfold Uh, in that water system uh, could extend to ours.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yesterday's report of the 992 parts per billion fuel in the water from that particular well was handled in a bit of an indelicate way, and they they did not express what they meant to express. Uh, And that just, of course, adds to a little additional distrust and and confusion. And that's very unfortunate, because in my conversations with them, they were able to clarify exactly where that fuel came from and which pipe. And I think that they are, you know, they're disappointed that they did not accurately convey where that water was from. I'm going to leave it to these experts because I don't want to make things even more confusing for people. But I will say this, there has been fuel in the water. It has to be fully remedied. Those pipes have to be flushed. I'm working and recommending that the Department of Health do all that they can and they are to help the navy flush those pipes safely remember we were dealing with also with a big superstorm recently and we were worried about overflowing the system and groundwater overflowing and pushing fuel into other bodies of water that was a risk so now that we're back to sunny skies more or less we can kind of expedite that but we had three different you know, if we had three different crises going all at once. That's quite amazing not to be talking about COVID. So we'll leave that aside. We're doing pretty well there. And then you had a superstorm which saturated the state with water. And then, of course, a fuel spill at Red Hill. So, you know, there was a lot going on these last couple of days. We're emerging from all of these challenges fine. But a lot of families are displaced. And, I, you know, I really feel what they're dealing with. I went and sat with about eight families yesterday in their backyard in Red Hill and I'll tell you they've got these beautiful children running around almost all of them have a bunch of little kids and they're scared to death about what the long-term impact is going to be from this fuel. I did do some reassuring, but I also want to be sober about this. We have to not just restore clean water, we're going to have to restore trust because when people go back to their homes, they're going to want to be more than just basically reassured. They're going to want to actually see the evidence that it was clean. And I think that's where we're headed with the Navy and the, you know, the board of water supply, but I really felt for them yesterday, and honestly, if our aquifer got contaminated, it wouldn't just be the military families who are, you know, there are our Ohana also, but it would be as many as 90,000 families across Oahu dealing with this kind of problem, and can't let that happen if at all possible, right? So these guys have to take this, and they are, more than seriously, and they're going to, as I expressed, go the extra mile to not just clean up the water, but to give us the data so that we can all trust it.
0: Well, you know, we are coming up on the anniversary of the uh, 2014 spill uh, where an estimated 27,000 gallons, you know, basically was discharged. And at the time, they didn't know where it went. Uh, And, you know, I'm trying to get clarification from the military as to whether any of this contamination that we're seeing in that particular military well uh, could be from that old discharge or is it something new?
1: It's something new. I'm almost convinced completely convinced of it. After seeing what I saw yesterday, and I'll do that that physical inspection today, uh, all of the data suggests, based on Occam's razor, which is that the most likely scenario is the scenario, that that's what happened. It was this human error and a pipe that was broken. Um, And then an incomplete cleanup. They thought it was at first just about 1,300 gallons, and it was more like 14,000 gallons. And I believe that's what it was. The um, the episode that happened in 2014, and I remember it pretty well because I was the chairman of the health committee and we went and investigated this. That's the last time I was inside Red Hill. We did see oil. I mean, I can personally recall seeing a large oil uh, spot or a large patch about eight feet tall on a wall that looked like a giant circle with with fuel behind the wall, and it was it was oily when you put your hand on it. Uh, most of that stuff, and I'm not diminishing in any way, shape, or form the severity of the situation, uh, most of that stuff does get contained because there's concrete, or, or steel, and then concrete, and then there's catchment areas. And then, of course, there's the rock between Red Hill and the water table. But nobody wants one spoonful of, of fuel in their water system. So we have to be very mindful.
0: Those tanks are tall. I mean, you can fit, you know, the Aloha Tower in there. And I've been up at the top, too. And and it it is pretty scary when you look down to see how deep those tanks are. But uh, we did talk with former Honolulu Mayor Mufi Hanuman yesterday. You know, he's with the Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association. And he says, yeah, the military's uh, basically reserved 1000 rooms in Waikiki. We don't know if they're going to re-up the temporary um, allocation for for those families. But obviously, everybody wants to, to get the fix. In quickly and get people back in their homes.
1: Yes, if I may, it's more than even just the fuel in the water, which is got to be resolved. But it's also yes, those thousand hotel rooms. There's actually as many as three thousand families right now being housed in different areas across Oahu. And then on top of that, here's the really um, you know impactful piece: if we have to use our wells in a way that is not traditional and start. Restricting water use or being more careful about water use, it will be very difficult for us to build new housing, which we're going to need very badly. You know, we're in a housing crunch. Obviously, you've covered that at great length and very professionally over the years. And also, supply water to hotels, which is going to be necessary for the economic uh, survival of our state. So, I'll be convening very likely the 10 largest water users sometime in the next week or two to have that conversation with them. And it will be hard to develop new housing if we don't kind of get a grip on this. So there's a lot at stake here with Red Hill. First and foremost, it's the health of our people and our children. But then thereafter, it's about how we move forward and how we continue to address the other challenges we have, specifically housing and tourism. These three things are all relevant, and they're relevant to how well we survive here in Hawaii.
0: That was Acting Governor Josh Green, who we talked to this morning and who is to tour the Red Hill site this afternoon. He said while he does believe we are in an emergency situation out of deference to Governor uh, David Ege, he will not formally ask President Biden to declare an emergency, but will leave that to Ege upon his return.
1: Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono
2: Initiative.
0: Federal investigators are looking into an apparent cyber attack on handyman servers. That is the topic of today's reality check. And joining us this morning is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Honore. Good morning.
2: Hey, Catherine! Happy Aloha Friday!
0: Happy Aloha Friday! But boy, you feel for the folks there at the Handy Van—you know, all the uh, customers and the uh, folks that are, uh, you know, trying to arrange the trips. What a mess!
2: Yeah, definitely not a great Aloha Friday for them. Um, You know, it's important to keep in mind that that Handy Van is one of the historically, it's been one of the busiest paratransit services in the nation. Uh, pre-pandemic, it would handle about four thousand rides around Oahu in the the same traffic we all face every day. Um, in the now nowadays, during the pandemic, it's down to about twenty five hundred rides, uh, which probably helped them a little bit yesterday. But it's still a very busy service for some of the most you know vulnerable uh, residents on the island. You're talking about seniors and disabled who are ADA certified to ride. So basically. Yesterday, there was uh, – a, a city officials confirmed a cyber attack on OTS servers. That's Oahu Transit Services, and that's the company that basically runs the bus and handy van for the city. Uh, this happened around 1 a.m. very early on Thursday morning, and it basically left the dispatchers and the drivers scrambling to rebook on the fly all of those those rides uh, that had been reserved in the last day or so. you know you have to you have to book your ride in advance. Well, that all went out the window and they basically had to send out the word to passengers and, and try and get it out there very quickly that they didn't have access to their reservations uh, for the day and and have people call in. So it was kind of a, a chaotic scene, but you know city transit officials said that they were able to more or less, Weather the storm using 1970s technology.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, and and these uh, passengers, we should point out, you know, a lot of them are going to doctors' appointments, that kind of thing, and so, you know, if there's a disruption there with that schedule, I mean, it just kind of snowballs.
2: That's right. I mean, it's it's really it's really a serious situation. This affected. Uh, the bus, in certain ways, uh, not as dramatically, and generally like OTS's administrative and, and operations. It wasn't just handy van, but handy van, you know, is certainly the most serious and the most severely affected for the the reasons you point out. Um, you know, you're talking about kidney dialysis appointments and and hospital appointments. That is, that's that's very frequent. Um, what OTS and the Department of, of Transportation are. Uh, Department of Transportation Services for the city, you know, they they were able to slightly alleviate this by looking at previous reservation logs uh, to pick up the recurring trips and you know to basically put those on the schedule. Uh, so that was one way that they helped handle and, and trying to alleviate the the situation that that you're pointing out.
0: Yeah, well, we did hear uh, some of our listeners call in, you know, riders of the handy van, and they appreciated getting the update you know, from the city, you know, trying to salvage the day without uh, too much uh, trouble. But, you know, I don't know. uh, There's no update, is there, on uh, how long this might last and when they can get things back online?
2: Yeah, I haven't received an update today, but as of yesterday evening, you know, it, they, it was clear they were going to have to do this for at least the next couple of days. It's not clear if they'll even be able to recover their, uh, their previous OTS servers. And it's important to point out that they severed the connection with the city servers so that those would not be affected. Uh, but, yeah, they may have to rebuild from scratch, so... Uh, Yeah, we'll just see going forward how this how this resolves.
0: Yeah. And we've heard lots of talk about, you know, uh, concern about a cyber attack. But we've had no like ransom requests or anything like that that we know of. Right.
2: Yeah. Again, as of yesterday, they they said so Roger Morton, who heads the city's transportation uh, agency, said this had the trappings of a ransomware attack. uh, But they had not at, at that point received any sort of message demanding payment. To release the servers,
0: right? But uh, obviously, what the FBI and Secret Service folks are uh, are looking into this.
2: Yeah, yeah, they they're not they're keeping things pretty close to the vest. Uh, but yeah, they've got all the federal agencies in. They're saying that no, they don't believe any sensitive financial information was compromised. But but that's where we're at so far.
0: Okay, all right. We'll keep tracking on this. <laughs> all right, but thanks so much, Marcel. Thank you. All right, we have been talking with Honolulu Civil beat reporter Marcel Omre. Read his uh, story, head to civilbeat.org.
1: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to offering the community inspiration and learning through art and education. Learn more about gift memberships at honolulumuseum.org join dash give.
0: One of the largest local suppliers of poinsettia plants here in the islands, Leilani Nursery in Waimanalo, hasn't been able to supply its customers with product this season as it has for more than three decades. The winter-blooming plant is native to Mexico and actually came to the U.S. in the er, uh, early 1800s. Southern California resident Paul uh, Ecke Sr. and his descendants are credited with turning it into a Christmas staple. University of Hawaii professor emeritus uh, Richard Crowley spent time with the Ecke family and studied poinsettia for more than five decades. The Conversations Lee and Song talked with Professor Criley to learn why it's in short supply this season.
3: Professor Crowley, it's officially winter, and we are starting to see lots of Christmas trees and poinsettia plants. And you just come from a UH poinsettia sale, bringing a beautiful pink specimen to the station. Why don't you break down the plant for us? A lot of us may actually misidentify the colorful, the flower part of the plant.
4: Well, what we're looking at that's so spectacular are modified leaves, which we call bracts. And those bracts tend to change color with the time of year. So come the short days of fall and winter, they color up to become the reds, the pinks, the whites, and the multicolors that we have now. And the true flowers are born at the very top of the plant. They're tiny little things. You have to look really close. You don't need a hand lens, but the male flowers will have little stamens sticking up, the tips of which are bright yellow. The female flower, on the other hand, will just have a three-forked extension at the top. Also sometimes have a sticky a nectar that attracts bees or other insects to come that may wind up pollinating the plant.
3: Hmm. Nature's way of continuing the species.
4: Right. Though All of the ones that we're seeing in the stores these days have been propagated vegetatively. And commercial growers may have had a limited amount of cuttings that they could buy this year. Shipping and all those things that are disrupting the marketplace. So we're a little bit shy on having the quantities of poinsettias this year that we normally would would be selling.
3: Mm. And so you've noticed a smaller output of this plant? Well,
4: so far in the stores. But if you go to the growers, because we've had such a warm fall, it's kind of held up some of the coloring of the plants. And so we should be getting a lot more and better quality plants over the next couple weeks.
3: So if I'm not finding as robust of a selection as I'd hoped, what you're saying is just be a little bit more patient. There are some plants coming down the pipeline. They're just waiting for the bracts to change color?
4: No, they've already changed color, but they're just waiting for maturation, enlargement. And in some cases, let's be honest, they're waiting for better prices. <laughs> 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 you know, in, in some cases, the, the big box stores would use poinsettias as a loss leader. Okay. And that means when they buy them from our growers, they're really pinching those growers on the price. Mm. But this year, with fewer plants available, the growers have, a hopefully, a little bit more... Uh,
3: bargaining power? Bargaining
4: power, yeah. Okay,
3: yes. I definitely have noticed a difference in the amount of plants available. You just brought this beautiful pink one from the UH Student Sale Nursery. And as I went to some stores and didn't have any luck finding any choices in color, as one vendor told me, they'd already sold out on the various colors of poinsettias last week, and it was basically red, red, and more red.
4: Right. Well... Our growers produce probably about 80% red, and so the rest of their bench space they can give over to the pinks and the whites. And then the newer colors, like the oranges and the marble, some of the newer color series comprise less than 10%, maybe even 5% of their production.
3: Well, this would be a good time to talk about growing tips. How do we take care of this specialty plant?
4: Okay, well, they like their water, but they don't like wet feet. So when you have a plant with an uh, aluminum foil cover around it, that tends to hold the water that you pour into the container, and that water keeps the, the medium sopping wet, and there's no oxygen in the soil for the roots. Hmm. So it's better to water until you see the water run out the bottom of the pot, and then you stop watering, and then once the top feels dry again, you can water. So water is one of the essential elements, but also light. Poinsettias are basically highlight outdoor plants that are being forced to grow inside, so they need an area that is going to have enough light to keep the leaves active. And if they're in too much of a shaded condition or in a portion of the room where they get blasted by the air conditioning, it dries out the leaves and they fall off. So it's kind of a balancing act between keeping the leaves alive and going and the plants that come into your living room now don't need to be fertilized because they've already reached the the peak of what their perfection should be.
3: I see. So by being observant, letting the soil dry out between waterings, basically not, not loving my plant to death means I'll have a happier plant.
4: Pretty much so. Keep it out of drafts. Give it enough light. Don't overwater it. I mean, more plants are killed by overwatering than by almost anything else. The other thing I find is if you pick up the pot, you can feel if the pot's heavy, which indicates that it probably has enough moisture in it. Okay. Good tips.
3: You are a professor emeritus from the University of Hawaii at Manoa's College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources, Give me a little background about yourself, professor.
4: Well, I joined the University of Hawaii in 1968. And among the first crops that I got to work on was poinsettias because our local growers at the time were not producing very high quality. And having come from California, where I did my PhD work at UCLA, We'd had the opportunity to visit many good growers and see how poinsettias were produced. We even got to visit the Ecke Poinsettia Ranch down near San Diego, where I met Paul Ecke Sr. and then his son, Paul Ecke Jr. And they're the people who have really made poinsettias into the holiday crop that they are now.
3: And you work with both senior and junior Ecke back in California?
4: Well, I got to meet them. Meet them, Uh, They were well known to my professor back there, and we would go out on field trips, go down to San Diego from LA, visit growers and I have a vivid memory of Paul Jr. holding up one of his new hybrids they called it C1. As a matter of fact, the start of poinsettias was as cut flowers, and Paul's grandfather, Albert, started growing poinsettias for cut flower use in the Hollywood hills mm. if you. Drive through Hollywood, you'll even come across a poinsettia lane, which is a leftover probably from that era.
3: Wow. So, this was in the late 60s and after California when you got to Hawaii. Were you noticing the poinsettias being a very popular plant? What did you see?
4: Well, at that time, we didn't have as many garden centers. Yes, they were being produced and they were being sold, but they tended to be tall. They tended to have few branches. The lower leaves often would fall off because the varieties that were available in the 60s tended to be descended from those landscape, outdoor cut flower types of poinsettias. And so again, Ecke was amongst the first to have a plant breeder breed poinsettias to be selected as potted plants and one of his first ones was that variety I mentioned, the C1. And
3: in Hawaii, are we seeing these descendants of C1? Uh,
4: Probably not C1, but we actually see some of the, well, the early varieties that Paul Sr. named were named for relatives like Barbara Ecke, Henrietta Ecke, Mrs. Paul Ecke, and those are the early ones that were sold into Hawaii, and people who would value their green thumbs would plant them out in their yards. And because these were descended from outdoor varieties, they often did well. So many times, if you drive around neighborhoods and you see a good-looking poinsettia plant in the landscape, it will be descended from one of these old cutflower flower varieties, one of the, the Ecke family types. Whereas today's varieties don't do nearly as well when planted out.
0: That was Professor Richard Cryley talking with H.P.R.'s Lillian Song. Cryley shared these tips about using poinsettias in arrangements. Be sure to wash off the white latex sap thoroughly so the plant can take in water. And change the water every other day. Cut blooms can last up to two weeks. Look for links to a site with colorful photos on our website later today.
1: Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School.
0: back with the conversation you know we're always keeping our eyes on trends when we're thinking of the kinds of stories to bring to you and one that caught our attention recently was roller skating let's revisit a story we aired back in October it happened to be national roller skating month and we thought we would share what we discovered about the sport in the islands call it a resurgence or a revival or new discovery getting on four wheels again has been a diversion for some during this pandemic and for others an obsession Remember this quirky song that captured a certain something about childhood skating days? At New York City's city's JFK Airport, skaters have enjoyed a pop-up rink at the TWA Hotel. The Rollerama opened up back in June, and it's to close at the end of this month. We got wind of a group of 20-somethings from Oahu who this summer headed to the Big Apple with roller skates in tow. Have skates, will travel. We caught up with Angela Huber and Rachel Sia in Kaimuki. They admit they've dropped serious money on this new habit and their addiction doesn't seem to show signs of waning. It's been a way to get into music of all kinds and to dance their COVID cares away.
5: And so how long have you folks been skating? Uh, not that long. It's been like seven months. Yeah, yeah, seven months. That. And what got you into it? Uh, it was during COVID and I guess watching all the social media and I was working a bunch. I really wanted to move around. I definitely, like Angela, I think that seeing all the videos of people skating online, it was really inspiring and seemed really liberating and it was exactly what i think we both needed in a time of a little bit more restriction
0: Rachel and Angela got their hipster roller time in Brooklyn and Williamsburg, and Rachel took it farther to Europe.
5: I went from New York to um, Germany, Berlin, actually, where it actually has one of the biggest skate communities I've ever seen, ever. Uh, it was really special, actually. A large um, part of the community skates in this actually old, abandoned airport, tarmac, where there are Roller skaters on quads, on the inline, bicycles, skateboarders, everyone there kind of skating together and there's music, so it's really special.
0: Melissa Garvey of Roller Skate Oahu knows a thing or two about the skating scene. She's from Jersey and spent many a day wheeling through Manhattan. Garvey never outgrew the sport. We caught up with her at a pop-up market in Kailua. She knew she was on to something when she sold out her inventory of skates a year ago. Hawaii used to have five skating rinks, attracting inline, speed, and roller derby skaters. Melissa dreams of opening up a shop and has the pulse on skating across the aisles.
6: Now um, So skatinghigh.com on Maui is a woman who um, loves roller skating. She has her own business, and she kind of added the skating on selling roller skates on her website. So um, those you have to call her, speak to her, get your size, and get them drop shipped to you. So it's uh, you have to measure your feet. You can't try them on. Um, but it's still a good service on Maui. Big Island has a shop now, they just opened up, so that's brilliant. I'm hoping to get a shop soon. Anything on Kauai? Um, there's a Ka'u Skate Club on Kauai, um, and they're doing well. They've got a set plot of land, and they're funding, raising funds to build, a, it sounds like an amazing plan, to build a purpose-built building. Um, so you can support them and buy their t-shirts and hats, and help them raise funds, Ka'u Skate Club. And they're the ones I'm aware of. There's new things popping up all the time. There's a great Facebook group called Hawaii Roller Skating. It's over a thousand members now all over the islands, mostly Oahu, but other islands too. There's also Hawaii Master Skaters on Facebook, on Big Island, again, other islands as well. But that Hawaii Roller Skating Facebook group, two women just started it back in September, and it's blown up. Everybody messages on there. I'm gonna go here, who wants to meet me? And people just meet up and skate and parks. they're all very respectful of each other. We've had a lot of rollouts, We're very aware of COVID, so we always mask up and socially distance. It's very family friendly. A lot of people bring their kids and it's just a fun place to meet up and skate and you get to see other people doing tricks and you can learn from them. Um, it's a very fun, social thing to
7: do.
0: Mimi Hajek came over for this pop-up event from the Big Island, where the sport is drawing interest from the younger set.
7: I have about 40 regular kids that come to our classes every week and we have like on the vacation time or like when school's off, I have about 70 kids now.
0: It's really taken off.
7: Yeah, it it has been taking off. So pretty good, you know, kids skating nowadays. And then, you know, uh, coming here, uh, I mean, it's a pop-up, but you know, kind of a
0: decent selection and a lot of people are checking them out.
7: Yeah, it's great because um, biggest problem that we have is all the skates are it fits differently and you never know until you try them on and until this came along like we had to order online and try them on and then if it doesn't work out you either have to deal with it or ship it back and that process takes like one month and stuff so this is great and so it
0: just sounds like uh, it's catching on on the different islands and people are just getting back into
7: it or just discovering it for the first time right Right, so um, I think our generation grew up on the roller skate link and now they have a kids and they want to do that together and that's kicking up with uh, little kids. Like m- Most of my um, kids that comes to learn to roller skate programs so are about 8 to 10 years old. Some starts younger, but yeah, that's mostly the age.
0: And Lemomi Kekina is somewhat of a speed demon. She can clock 22 miles an hour on quads, which has won her the admiration of fellow skaters. She tells us while looking for something to get her through COVID and the shutdown, she stumbled across roller skating again, fell in love again, channeling her inner child at 50 something.
8: And so I immediately bought another pair of skates and continued skating um, to the point where I did a hundred mile challenge in 10 days Um, And now for the month of October, I'm trying to skate five miles a day every day for the month of October. Um, I can't explain what the addiction is or how we got addicted. um, But once you get into your groove, it's just, it's unexplainable in that once these skates are on my feet, I feel like I'm 10 years old again, even though I'm 52 and feel like I'm old as heck. But it gives me great joy when when the kids come up to me and go, Oh, auntie, you're like the auntie to keep up with, man. You're so fast. But I'm just trying to get in shape. I'm just trying to have fun. And every time I put them on, my face just wants to break into a big old smile. And and, and I can't help it. I feel like I'm 10 years old again at 52. It's incredible. So it's just pure joy. It's just pure joy, pure exhilaration. Even though it feels like we're not good and we're kind of junk at it and our balance is junk, just, just the sheer joy of having them on our feet and feeling the, that nostalgic youngness again is just exhilarating. It's really exciting. Forget about COVID. What COVID? I'm just gonna skate the streets, man. <laughs> Thank
0: you. And there you have it, riding the roller skating wave watch out skater boys skater girls and aunties are coming through